calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. You're listening to Call of the Herald, book one of the Dawning of Power trilogy, a podcast novel written and read by Brian Rathbone. For more information and additional downloads, visit brianrathbone.com. Thank you for listening. A pool of molten wax and a dwindling wick were all that remained of Wendell Volker's candle and he let it burn. His eyes, swollen with tears, were focused beyond the blank wall he faced. Raising Katrin alone had never been in his plans. He had done the best he could without Elsa, but in Wendell's mind, it never seemed enough. If not for Benjen, he wasn't sure they would have survived. All along they had struggled, but now they faced a danger far too great. The chill of fear crept up his neck. Fear not for himself, but for his beloved daughter. Remembering the damage in the clearing, Wendell felt goosebumps rise on his skin. More disturbing than the damage was the look in Katrin's eyes. She felt responsible and guilty. That much was clear. Wendell tried to figure out what might have happened, but he found no answers. Instead, he accepted the fact that he might never know. What mattered was that people would be angry, confused, and afraid, all of which put Katrin in danger. Stronger and deeper than his greatest personal desire was the need to protect his daughter. So powerful was this urge that he went to where she slept and stood over her, watching her breathe. Help me be strong for her, my dearest Elsa, he said under his breath, and he wept quietly. If you've ever heard me, hear me now. I can't do this alone. I need you. Katrin needs you. Then... He stiffened his jaw and firmed his resolve. Watch over her, my love, and keep her safe. As darkness claimed the sky, Nat Derzinger stood at the center of the clearing. All the others had long since gone to their homes and were probably discussing the day's events over their evening meals. 
but Nat tried to push that vision from his mind. Such thoughts brought him only pain and misery, and this was not a time he needed to be reminded of his loss. What he needed was guidance on what to do next. The prophecies warned of disastrous events, but they gave no indication of anything that could be done to prevent the foretold dangers. There must be something he could do, Nat thought. But he came to the same realization he had come to in the past. It would take more than just him. Somehow, he would have to convince those who had enough power to make a difference. Given his past failures, he found it difficult to be optimistic. Bending down, he pulled a blade of grass from the ground and marveled at how cleanly it had been broken. He let his mind wander for a time, until something tugged at his awareness and demanded his attention. A familiar yet indefinable smell drifted on the breeze, and Nat's eyes were drawn to the heavens. As a sailor, he knew the stars as friends and followed their guidance. But on this night, they seemed almost insignificant, as if their power were about to be usurped, their beauty eclipsed. Nat had nothing more than his feelings to guide him, and his thoughts ran in a familiar pattern. So many times his instincts and gut feelings had caused him nothing but trouble. He would spill his heart to save those who showed him only hostility. Why? He asked himself for what seemed the thousandth time, but then his familiar pattern changed irrevocably. As he looked at the blade of grass and the tangled mass of downed trees that lined the clearing, it was proof. No one could argue it or claim that it was the creation of his deranged mind. This was real and undeniable. For the first time in more than a decade, he did not question himself. When he looked back to the sky, he believed completely. His father had been right all along. There was little consolation in this knowledge, for it foretold a difficult and perilous future for all. But it was vindicating for Nat nonetheless. As his thoughts wandered, he felt himself drifting into a different state of awareness. His eyes fixed on the sky, yet focused on nothing. He felt himself being drawn upward, lifted to the heavens. His eyes felt as if they would be pulled from their sockets, so strongly did the sky seem to reach for them, longingly and insistent. The vision began more as a feeling than images in his mind. He felt small and afraid in the face of a coming storm. Lightning flashed across his consciousness, and thunder rattled his soul. From the skies came a rain of fire and blood, and the land was rent beneath his feet. A single silhouetted figure stood between him and the approaching inferno. Nat reached out, his hands clawing toward salvation, but his only hope faded along with the vision. Lying face up at the center of the grove, just as Katrin had found herself, Nat drew a ragged breath. Sweat 
ran into his eyes and his heart beat so fast and hard that he thought it might burst. He realized then that it might be better if he were truly mad. Chapter 2 If peace cannot be made, then peace shall be seized. Von of the Elsics As daylight streamed in through the open window, Katrin woke from a restless sleep, and she struggled to bring herself fully awake. Nightmarish visions plagued her slumber. Twisted dreams were so vivid that she had trouble distinguishing which events were real and which were nightmares. She pulled herself from her sweat-soaked linens, hoping the attack on Osborne had been nothing but a dream. Sleep still filled her eyes and muddled her thoughts as she padded into the small common room she shared with her father. He had left water in the wash basin for her, but that had been some time ago and the water was no longer warm. Katrin tried to wash away the sweat from her fevered dreams, wishing she could scrub away the horrors she felt closing around her, waiting to strike. The cold water helped clear the haze from her mind, allowing her to separate fantasy from reality. Her aching body brought her to a chilling realization. It was real. The attack, the explosion, the strange way she was treated were all real. On shaking legs, she dressed in her leathers and homespun, tears welling in her eyes as she imagined the consequences. Her life would be forever changed, and depression overwhelmed her. In an effort to feel normal, she got ready to do her chores. She donned her heavy boots and worn leather jacket, which had been left by the fire to dry. The jacket was covered in creosote stains and had a host of minor rips and tears, but she insisted on wearing it until it fell apart completely. Like a cherished companion, it had been with her on many an adventure, and she was loath to abandon it. After she strapped on her belt knife, she gathered her laundry, a washboard, and some bits of soap. If she wished to have something comfortable to sleep in, she would need to get her things hung to dry. Not even raising her head as she stepped from the cottage into the barnyard, she let her feet carry her across the familiar distance. It was a short walk to the river, and she had a well-worn path to follow. Turbulent thoughts rattled her mind, and when she reached the river's edge, she did not recall most of the walk. Kneeling on the shore, she dipped her nightclothes into the clear, frigid water which numbed her fingers. She applied a bit of soap to the garments and scrubbed them vigorously on the washboard. But then she heard shouts coming from the barn. Throwing her garments into the dirt, she sprinted to the barn, fearing someone was hurt. The sound of several voices shouting carried across the distance, which alarmed her even more since her father and Benjamin were normally the only ones about. She stopped short when a familiar-looking man backed out of the barn, waving his arms in front of him, and he came close to falling over backwards. Two more men followed, both in similar states of retreat, and Katrin was shocked to the core of her being when her father charged out next, looking like a man in a murderous rage. Benjamin swarmed out at his side, his pitchfork leveled at the retreating men. You expect us to live with that abomination in our midst? One man shouted as he backpedaled. That hussy damn near killed my boy. He might die yet from what she did to him. You've no proof of that, Petram. Nor you, Burl, nor you, Rolf. You'll take yourselves off my property this instant or so help me. 
he said through clenched teeth. Then he actually growled at them. A threatening step forward sent the other men scrambling back. Benjamin had not said a word, but the look in his eyes made it clear he would not hesitate to stick them with his pitchfork if they persisted. And it appeared as though the men might leave before any blood was shed. Massive waves of fear, embarrassment, and guilt washed over Katrin, freezing her in place. She wanted to flee or scream, but could do neither. Instead, she stood still as a stone and watched the events unfold, hoping to remain unseen, but it was not to be. The men spotted her and glared. "'What are you staring at, you boiling little witch?' one man shouted, and Katrin recognized him as Peton's father, Petram. She also recognized the fathers of the other boys. As they scowled at her, she quailed. The hatred in their eyes made her feel small and dirty. You will burn for this, Katrin Volker, Burl shouted over his shoulder. But his speech was cut short when Benjen swung the pitchfork handle at his head, and the three men fled. The council will hear of this, Petrum shouted. Then they were gone, leaving Katrin to consider their words. Her father turned to her, and the look on his face softened. She stood silent tears streaming down her cheeks unchecked, and her lip quivered as she struggled to maintain her composure. Ah, Cat, I wish none of this were happening. You've certainly done nothing to deserve what those sons of jackals just said. Don't take their words into your heart, dear one. They're just scared, confused, and looking for someone to blame. I'll take care of them. Don't you worry. Come along now. We have horses to tend, and I need to make a trip to the cold caves this afternoon, he said as he guided her into the barn. Katrin's father had inherited the cold caves from his father, Marix. A popular barroom tale said her grandfather had won the caves in a wager with Headmaster Edom. They said Edom had been drinking with Marix at the watering hole after the summer games. Edom's son had won the cross-country horse race, and he celebrated with Marix, who had trained the horse and they both got too far into their drink. Edom bet Marix he could not get the innkeeper, Miss Olsa, to show them her wares. Miss Olsa was an older woman at the time, though not unattractive, and she had a reputation for being a shrewd businesswoman. Marix called her to his table and whispered into her ear for a long time. When he pulled his cupped hand away, Miss Olsa turned to the drunken headmaster, pulled up her blouse, and boldly revealed herself. Then she ran into the kitchen, giggling like a young girl. No one knew what Marix said, but the locals swore no one ever duplicated the feat, which made her grandfather a bit of a town hero. Katrin suspected he said something regarding the free cold cave storage still enjoyed by Olsa's daughter, Miss Maris, long after Olsa's passing. Benjen had followed the men off the property to make sure they caused no more trouble, and he returned just as Katrin entered the barn. Don't let those fools bother you, little miss. They haven't got the sense the gods gave them, he said, hefting his pitchfork in mock combat. On his way back to the stall he'd been cleaning, he stopped and patted Katrin on the shoulder with his overlarge, calloused hand. His simple act of kindness shattered Katrin's fragile composure, and with each step more tears flowed down her cheeks. Sobs racked her and she stood before her father, trembling. Her shoulders hunched forward. She could not bring herself to look him in the eye, and she stared at the ground instead. 
Her father never let the tribulations of the day disturb his routine, which gave Katrin comfort. He brought Charger, his roan mare, from her stall and put her on cross ties. He ran a curry comb over her muddy coat with one hand and smoothed the freshly brushed coat with his other. Charger was accustomed to his ministrations and promptly fell asleep, letting the cross ties hold up her head. What happened in the woods yesterday? her father asked without looking up from his task. Peaton was angry at Chase and Osborne for playing a trick on him, and the townies attacked Osborne on his way home. I tried to protect him, and they attacked me. I thought I was going to die. But right before Peyton hit me, the world exploded. It's hard to explain. It was so strange and so very horrible, she said, and she tried to continue, but her sobs would not be suppressed. She hugged herself in an effort to maintain control while her father deftly unhooked the cross ties and returned Charger to her stall. After closing the stall gate, he went to Catherine and awkwardly put his arms around her. It was a rare gesture, which neither of them was truly comfortable with, but it meant a lot to her nonetheless. You certainly have your mother's knack for turning the world on its side, my little cat. It'd be easier if she were here. I'm sure she would know what to do. But we'll get through this together, you and I. Don't you worry yourself sick. It's not so bad as it seems he said with a forced laugh as he tousled her hair. Now you run along and take the rest of the day for yourself. You've more than earned it with all the hard work and long days you put in this winter, he continued. Katrin tried to argue, but he insisted. Benjamin and I can handle things around here. Off you go, little miss. Maybe you could catch us some nice bass for dinner, eh? Benjamin said with a wink and her father shot him a good-natured scowl. I give my daughter the day off, and you want her to catch your dinner? Wendell said, shaking his head. Laughter released some of Katrin's anxiety, and she left to fetch the laundry she had abandoned by the river. After she finished the washing, she took it to the cottage to hang it up to dry. When she was done, she took a piece of waxed cheese, some dried fruit, and a few strips of smoked beef for her breakfast. On her way back out of the cottage, she grabbed her bow, two fishing arrows, and her fishing pole. There was more than one way to catch a fish, and she was determined to bring back dinner. Following the path back down to the riverbank, she turned north onto the trail that ran alongside the river. Feeling as if every step took her farther from society and away from the source of her fears, she climbed past the shoals and falls where the path was often steep and rocky. Along the way, she turned over rocks and collected the bloodworms that had been hiding in the darkness. By the time she reached the lake at the top of the falls, she had an ample supply of bait. Along the shores, the water was shallow and slow, and fishing was generally quite good. When she reached one of her favorite places, she laid out her gear. Dark red blood oozed over her delicate fingers as she slid a bloodworm onto her hook, and she wiped it on her jacket adding yet another stain. Her fishing line was far too coarse for her liking, but good fishing wire was expensive. She would have to make do with what she had. After checking the knot that held her lightwood bobber in place, she cast her line near a down tree, which was partially submerged in the water, forming a perfect hiding place for the fish. 
A towering elm gave her shade, and its moss-covered trunk provided a comfortable seat. She leaned against the tree and waited for the fish to bite. The stillness of the lake stood out in stark contrast to the maelstrom of thoughts that cluttered her mind. She attempted to review the events of the previous day, but she could not focus. When she tried to concentrate on one thought, another would demand her attention, then another, and another. Frustrated, she tried to put it all from her mind. Her pole jerked in her hands, and the lightwood bobber jumped back to the surface. With a hurried yank, she set the hook and pulled the fish in, relieved it had not gotten away with her bait. The largemouth bass put up a good fight, and when it emerged from the water, she was pleased to see it was longer than her forearm. Not enough to feed three, but a good start. After baiting her hook again, she cast it near where she caught the first fish, but she got no more bites for the rest of the afternoon. The dark shadows of large fish moved below the surface, taunting her, and as the sun began to sink, she decided to try her luck with the bow. Normally, fishing arrows were only used when the carp were spawning, since they made easy targets as they congregated in the shallows. Bass would be much harder to hit, but she'd been practicing her archery skills and she hoped the effort would pay off. After securing her long string to the fishing arrow, she tied the other end off on an elm branch. Not wanting to lose her arrow, she double-checked her knots. Confident they were secure, she located a likely target and took aim. Ripples in the lake's surface distorted her depth perception, and her first few shots missed their marks. Determined, she did her best to compensate for the distortion, and her next shot was true, catching another bass in the tail and pinning it to the bottom. Nice shot! Chase shouted from behind her, and she nearly leaped from her skin. Don't you know it's not nice to sneak up on people? She said, truly glad to see him. He just grinned in response. She gave a tug on her string, but her arrow was firmly wedged, and she removed her boots, preparing to go in after it. Let me get that for you, Chase offered. I can get it. I'm not crippled, she retorted angrily and instantly regretted it. She had no reason to be angry with Chase, but she felt helpless, a feeling she despised, and she needed to lash out at someone. Chase took it in stride, though, and simply sat on the shore while she waded out to the flailing fish. She freed the arrow quickly and grabbed the fish by the tail. It was slightly smaller than the first, but it would be enough. The bruises on her hip and shoulder ached as she climbed from the water, her muscles stiff from the time spent sitting under the tree. Chase grabbed the other fish and Katrin's bow while she retrieved her pole and her other fishing arrow. She was grateful for his help. Without it, she would have had a difficult time carrying it all home. Chase was quiet for the first part of their walk, and Katrin allowed the silence to hang between them. I visited the infirmary this morning, he said after a while. And when Katrin made no reply, he continued, Osborne is doing much better and should recover quickly. He has a broken nose, a couple of badly bruised ribs, and a score of bumps and bruises. But he was awake this morning. He told everyone that you saved his life. Katrin grunted, but said nothing. Carter has a broken leg, but otherwise, he's fine. Chad has a head wound and can't remember much of anything, 
Heck, he didn't even know who I was. The master said his memory should return in a few days, but his mother's hysterical. She just keeps shouting that her baby's been mortally wounded. Peyton's hurt bad. The masters won't say if he'll live or die. But he did wake up for a while this morning. I think he'll recover myself. He didn't look nearly as bad as most were making him out to be. He stopped and Katrin turned to look him in the eye. Her lip quivered, but otherwise she maintained her composure. I didn't do anything, Chase. I don't know what happened, she said, and Chase remained silent. The last thing I remember was Peyton bearing down on us and swinging his staff at my head. I saw my reflection in his staff, Chase. It was coming right at my face. How could I not have a mark on my head? She asked, not anticipating a response. At the very moment I expected his staff to crush my skull, there was a loud bang, like thunder, but without the lightning. Just before I passed out, it looked like the world was flying away from me. And when I woke, it was like being in a nightmare. I believe you, Cat. Besides, even if it was something you did, you were just saving Osborne from those boiling townies, he said. She didn't like the insinuation that it could have been something she did, but she couldn't blame him. What evidence was there to prove otherwise? She began to doubt herself, but for the moment she clung to what she knew to be true. They were going to kill poor Osborne. I just know it. They probably would have gotten away with it, too. I'm sure they would have just made up some story about him trying to rob them or some other rubbish. And that is just the kind of thing the masters would believe of us farm folk, she said. They'll believe worse than that. The main reason I came was to warn you. Rumors are spreading. Some say you're a witch or monster, and others have even claimed you're a sleepless one. There have been some who have spoken up for you, but several suffered beatings as a result. I don't think it's safe for you to go in town right now. Too many people have lost their senses, and they're starting to believe some of the crazy things people are making up, he said. Katrin sniffed and wiped her eyes, but made no other sound. I'm truly sorry, Cat. I feel like this is my fault. If I hadn't brought that snake in, none of this would have happened. I'll do anything I can to help you, and I'll always stand up for you. No, Katrin interrupted. I don't want you getting hurt because of me. Keep your thoughts private. You'll be more help to me if you just listen and let me know what people are saying. Perhaps you could bring me my lessons? She said, but her voice cracked and she could not get the rest out. Don't worry, I'll bring your lessons to you. And I won't do anything stupid. But I'm not going to let them get away with telling lies about you either. Thank you, was all she could manage to say without sobbing and they walked back to the farm in silence. As they approached, her father and Benjen waved, and they held up the bass in silent greeting. Benjen let out a whoop of glee on seeing the fish, and her father just shook his head. Benjen met them halfway. Nice catch you got there, little miss. Here, let me take those. I'll get started on the cleaning, he said with a smile. 
Katrin started to object, but Benjen grabbed the fish and looked quite happy carrying them off to be cleaned and filleted. You go get washed up for dinner, he shouted over his shoulder, and Katrin was happy to oblige. She was wet, dirty, and in need of a good scrubbing. After she and Chase washed up, they joined Benjen and her father in the cottage and were greeted by the smell of vegetable stew. I knew you wouldn't come home empty-handed, little miss. I'll just boil the fish and add it to the stew. We'll eat like kings, Benjen said as he stoked the fire. Chase pulled the rough but warm blanket around his shoulders as he curled up in front of the fire. Everyone else slept, but he could not. His thoughts would not allow it. He had been ready to face the repercussions of his actions, but he had not been prepared for Osborne and Katrin to pay the price in his stead. He decided he didn't like the taste of guilt and remorse. Katrin was gentle and fragile, and he was supposed to protect her. He had promised Uncle Wendell that he would always look after her. But when she and Osborne had needed him most, he had failed them. Running his thumb over the locket that hung around his neck, he vowed to do better. Somehow, he would shield her from the harshness of this world. That concludes this episode of Call of the Herald. For more information and additional downloads, visit brianrathbone.com. Thank you for listening.